Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. Almighty Fortress, you go before us. What can stand against our God? What can stand against our God? Nothing can stand against our God. Oh, God. The battle belongs to you. Well, we're going through a bit of a battle in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13 this morning. We looked back in chapter 9 in verse 51 we read, it came to pass when the time had come for him to re be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. We read in chapter um, nine also that he had told his disciples the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day he would say then if anyone would desire to come after me then to take up his own cross daily and follow him right deny yourself and, and so we came into this passage where Jesus has been sharing with the disciples and then the Pharisees invite him to dinner and treat him poorly. He has to dress them down for their hypocrisy. He would tell the crowds that gathered after that dinner. They were so close, they were trampling one another. And just multitudes, innumerable. And he says, beware, first of all, of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy being two-faced, double standard, showing the world one thing and inside you're another thing. And this is the thing that basically described the Pharisees, holier than thou, glorious robes, all the best seats in the synagogue, all the praise when they go to the marketplace, the religious elite, if there's such a thing. Really? Right. Is anybody above Christ? What did Christ just set his face to do? Go to the marketplace and get praise? Have the best seat in the synagogue? What did he just set his face to go do? I'm going to the cross. They're going to crucify me, and if anyone would be my disciple, you're going to go down the same road. And so he's been going down this road, and he warned these people that are trying to follow him, beware of hypocrisy, beware of covetousness, beware of worry, beware of carelessness, beware of ignorance. And it was really directed at the Pharisees and then all these people that are trying to press in to the kingdom. And here we come to verse 1 of chapter 13, as he continues on with his karats. You remember that word I told you a while back? It's a Hebrew word for stringing pearls. Jesus is teaching one pearl at a time. Luke is taking 
all of these teachings of Jesus and just stringing them together so that he can help us to see what is happening, what is going on with Jesus, what is going on with the religious leaders, with the political leaders, with the common people of the day. What's happening here? There's lots of turmoil, lots of agitation. Jesus would say, I came to set fire on the earth in verse 49 of last week, chapter 12, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. Remember, when Jesus was being baptized, we saw it um, in Matthew chapter 3, at verse 7, when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that, uh, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham even from these stones. And he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Basically, God is done with Israel and their religion and their priests and their Pharisees and their holier-than-thou self-righteous attitude. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into a fire. John would say, I indeed baptize you with water, but he who comes after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, for I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is just about done with religion. In fact, before the day is over, we'll see his last visit recorded to a synagogue. He's pretty much done with all of this religious hypocrisy and covetousness and laziness and ignorance and, and uh, it just churns his stomach. So here we are as Luke Hratz strings together these pearls to help us see the picture. Verse 13. Or chapter 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans who, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He goes on to explain, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is kind of a summation of everything that Jesus has been teaching us over the last couple chapters. Unless you repent, it doesn't matter what your station in life is, what your position, what you think. 
unless you turn, repent. Metanoia is the word, and it means to change your thinking. You've got to get a, a whole new mindset going on, a whole new worldview. You're not going to go to heaven by your church. I hear it all the time. I don't, I don't do formal religion. People tell me this. I'm like, I don't either. If you came to your church, you'd see we're pretty informal. Go to the Jesus Revolution movie and see some informal Christians, right? But I, I don't go, I don't do formal church. And usually what they're talking about quite often is Roman Catholicism, because that's been the formal church for 2,000 years. Or they're talking about Protestantism, or they're talking about evangelicalism and all the denominations. Or they're talking about uh, Calvary chapels, or they're talking about the LDS church, or they're talking about whatever, I don't do systems. I don't do organizations. I don't do formal, ch formal church. And I said, well, I got good news for you. Jesus was pretty fed up with it too. And that's what he's really trying to help us see here. So he uses some of these examples. Let's the back up just a little bit. I read about it. There were those present at that season, some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This is referring to an issue where Pontius Pilate, who was the governor appointed by Ro Rome to uh, rule over Palestine, if you will, what they named it, uh, Jerusalem, he decided to do a public works project to build an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. And so he took money from the temple treasury. This is money that was dedicated to God. It wasn't public money, okay? They gave it to the church, right? It's kind of like a 5013C, if you will, of their day. But you can't touch that. Can't touch that. But Pilate did. He took the money. Well, a bunch of Galileans took a front to that. They came up into the temple and they staged protests there on the Temple Mount. Pilate, Pilate, in order to put this resurrection, this coup, this rebellion down, sent in a bunch of Roman soldiers, cloaked, right? And, and nobody could tell who they were. And they went in amongst the crowd, and they all had daggers, and they just stabbed them and killed a slew of Galileans, mingled their blood with their sacrifices. This is what is being referred to here. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Do you think that because something bad happened to them, they must be bad people? Because this is something that was very prevalent in Jesus' day. The rabbis would tell you, if you're a good person, good things will happen to you, right? It's kind of a Jewish karma if you can mix those two. And, and Jesus saying, that's not how it works. I don't know if you guys picked up your Calvary Chapel magazine in there, but there's a beautiful article in there about Amanda and Levi Woodhouse. Many of you know him. Levi grew up in Buell, and uh, he was in the area here, a pastor of ours, and we knew him very well. And uh, sadly, last fall in October, Driving up here, coming across the Nevada desert, their vehicle rolled. Levi was ejected and killed. Amanda was pregnant. Do you think that something wrong with Levi? Something wrong with Amanda? That's what happened to them? Right? This guy loved the Lord. He lived for the Lord. He, he gave his life. <laughs> 
for the Lord. And Jesus is saying, you can't look at what's happening to a person. You know, we have this idea that why do bad things happen to good people? It's a, it's a bad question. Let me give you the good question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Because we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Why on earth would anything good happen to any of us stinky sinners? Because God is good. God is love. And God breaks through, right? And, and he loves us and he woos us. He draws us to himself. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. After he shared with this crowd, the Pharisees, those are religious elites, no love. They wouldn't even heal a person. And, and, and it just, they, they had all their laws, but they had no love. And now the multitude in jeopardy of following that same path, crowding around this famous rabbi wanting to hear some pearl of wisdom, he drops a pearl on him. Verse 3, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish unless you repent. That's his story to the crowd. In fact, if you read in the Gospels, that's the first thing Jesus is recorded as saying when he takes his public ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he was all about, trying to help people change their thinking, change their direction, change their behavior. You're headed on this path to destruction. But I've got the truth. I'll show you the way. I am the life. But you're going to need to repent. And when it says all right there in the Greek, that means it doesn't. I know you're all ready for me, right? Yeah, in the Greek, that means all. But I've got something a little bit more. It's it means y'all. It means us. Okay. Anybody who's walked the face of the earth, this is a pearl that Jesus wants you to know. Unless you repent, change your thinking. You think you're getting into heaven by formal religion? Do you think you're getting into heaven by the number of rosaries you do, by the number of works that you do, by the number of times you serve in children's ministry or watch the parking lot here? You think that's going to get you into heaven? Repent. Change your thinking. There, Jesus has already opened the door. He says, I am the door. You just have to say thank you and walk in. And that's just so cru crucial to what he's going to say to them. He goes on and says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell. Siloam is uh, in Jerusalem. There was, uh, they were, it was a public works project uh, near the pool of Siloam. And apparently some bad engineering, it fell, 18 people died. Do you think that was because they're bad people? What do you think about the 45,000 people who just perished in Turkey? Do you think they're all, all bad people? That's why that happened to them in the earthquake? Again, there's Calvary Chapel pastors, husbands and wives that are buried under that rubble today. Good people, lots of Christians ministering in those communities. We can't look at the outside and judge it. We have to see what God is doing on the inside. Um, 
<laughs> they're not worse sinners than all other men. Verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Right, that's a second pearl. Same pearl, but he put it on twice. Don't miss it. And this is really kind of what this whole passage is going to be about now in chapter 13, is to repent. As he would teach, as he was teaching them in chapter 12, at verse 31, to seek first the kingdom of God. Then all these things will be added to you. You need to get your mind fixated on Christ, on heaven, on the call that God has for you to be changed, to be born again, to be a new creation, to have an eternal destiny, a child of God, a king's kid. And you have set your face for the cross. Whatever it is, whatever he's put in your life, don't shirk it. Embrace it. Pick it up. Carry it. He's going to bring about blessing, eternal life in your life through that. Now, in verse 6, he also spoke this parable. Okay, remember, a parable is a story. We read the story. We're supposed to understand the big picture. A parable is something that we on earth would understand, and it's supposed to picture for us something a heavenly reality, a heavenly truth, something that if he told us in the heavenly realms, we'd be scratching our head, what is he talking about? But here on earth, this is what it looks like. <gasps> okay, I get it. So let's see what he says. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. So what any vineyard owner would expect, fruit to come from his vineyard or his, his orchard, his fig trees, and the, the, the person tending the vine says, let me, tr one last try. Just let's give it another, one more try, okay? We'll fertilize it, and if nothing happens next year, then we'll go ahead and cut it down. Jesus is speaking about something that the Jews in that crowd would really understand out of Isaiah chapter 5. It begins um, in verse 1. I'll read on through verse 7, and I think you'll see the comparison, and we'll pick out of that some ideas. Verse of Isaiah 1 reads, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choices of vines. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Oh, now, O oh inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have not done to it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and I, it shall be burned. I'll break down its wall, it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste." 
It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds. They rain on it. They rain no rain on it. Verse 7 is key. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. That's the fruit that the vine owner is looking for in Isaiah. He's looking for justice, the fruit of justice, the fruit of righteousness. But he's not finding it. The vineyard is Israel. And Jesus tells his parable to help them understand, I'm done with Israel. There is no fruit. There is no justice. There is no righteousness. My winnowing fan is in my hand. I've come to bring division. The axe is laid to the tree. I bring fire. We're going to just burn up the chaff. Jesus says, I am done with this whole religious facade, facade, whatever, hypocrisy, facade. Thank you. <laughs> I'm done, he says. And that's the idea, um, bearing fruit. Jesus would also say in another place, I'm sure you're very familiar with this, in John chapter 15. At verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bear fruits, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me... You can do nothing. And Israel is rejecting their Messiah. They're rejecting their vine dresser. They're rejecting the vine. They don't want to have anything to do with that. Now, the good news in all of this is that when Christ came, he came to fulfill that ministry of Israel, which was to be a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to shine the light of Christ to the whole world, all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. They didn't. They became selfish. They grew inward. They were closed, like many churches. Just a feel-good club. Mutual appreciation association. And they did not fulfill their calling, what they were there to do. Verse 10 now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. As I mentioned earlier in my introduction, this will be the last appearance of Jesus at the synagogue. Last time he graces their assembly. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. Interesting 
How many people died when the tower fell in Siloam? 18 people died. Is there a connection here? I don't know. It's provocative. It makes you think, is Jesus making a connection here? She had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise up or raise herself up. She was unable to heal herself, to mend herself. This idea of being bent over or bent out of shape, being bent double, she's crooked. And here she is. Where is she? Where are we? Where do we just read? Jesus' last visit to the what do we call that nowadays when we gather? Church. And there's a person at church who is just beat up, bent over, can't do anything to save herself, to heal herself, to cure herself. But she's there. She's there anyways. What's she, what's she there for? It doesn't say, does it? What are you here for? Are you here to get something? Or are you here to give something? I like to think that woman was there to give, to give her heart to the Lord. That's what Israel was supposed to be, was a place that we could come and have fellowship with God. I want to praise God. I want to sing His praises. I want to pray to God. I want to talk to God. I want to hear from God. And should He will it, I'd love to be touched by God and healed by God. But when Jesus saw her, He called her to Him and said to her, Woman, you are unloosed from your infirmity. Unwrapped is what He says. Let loose, set free. Do you remember back in the Gospel of Luke, the first time we see visit Jesus visited a synagogue? It's in Nazareth, his hometown. And this is what he says to his hometown church in the synagogue. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he was reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He says he closed the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes of all who were in the synagogue, were fixed on him. He said, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. I am Messiah. I'm here to bring healing. I'm here to bring deliverance. I'm here to bring liberty. He went through a couple of examples, and they became exceedingly angry with him. It's said in verse 28 there in chapter 4 of Luke, so all those in the synagogue, you can be sure it's the Pharisees, right? It's all the elders, it's all the scribes, it's all the common people. The whole crowd we're reading about here in chapter 13, they're all representatives from the whole group. All those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath 
and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over a cliff. And then he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. You see, he's had, he's, he, from the day one, he's had his face set for Calvary. His face was set to bring liberty to the captives, to loose those who are bound, to unwrap those who are wrapped up in sin and shame and death. And nothing deters him from his task. So here he is now at his last synagogue visit. Verse 13, he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Praise God. How many of you can give testimony that Jesus Christ has touched your life? He's taken that wretch, that outcast, that lonely one, or that proud one, whoever they would be. He took me, and he touched me, and he healed me, and he set me on a new path that I would follow him. Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed <laughs> on a church day. That's a terrible day to heal somebody at church. Why, why don't do it some other time, not here. Again, I don't know why she was there, but it seems to me this is a good place to get her done. Because he had healed on the Sabbath and he said to the crowd, the synagogue leader, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord, interesting, Luke doesn't call him Jesus, Rabbi. He uses his title, Lord, just to emphasize, he's the boss. Then the Lord answered him and said, hypocrite, where have we heard this word before? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Just last uh, passage, he was talking about uh, the multitude. He says in verse 54 of chapter 12, uh, he said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and it, so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there is. And then he says to the multitudes, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Jesus is in the house. Jesus is here with healing. He wants to set you free. Now, many of us have walked with Christ. We're born again. We're not, uh, you know, children of the devil any longer. We're sons of God. But we still can use a touch. We still need to do some business with him. We still need to confess where we failed, where we fallen short. Or those things which when we were first saved, wow, I was saved from, in my life, things like uh, substance abuse, pornography, lying, vandalism, theft. I wasn't a good guy. It's funny how now, 30 years into it, he's still working on me. And those things which I wouldn't even thought they were sins back in the day. Now he's like, you weren't very nice to your wife when you said that to her today. <gasps> and he's right. <laughs> and I need to repent. I still need to repent. 
I still need to turn around. I need to confess. I need to be cleansed. Verse 15, the Lord answered and said to him, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath lose his own donkey from a stall and lead it away to water it? The answer is obvious. Of course they do. You water your animals every day. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, a child of the nation of Israel, right? Talk about a birthright and a pedigree. If anybody deserves healing, it should be one of your own. Being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, look what Jesus says. Think of it. I mean, I'm just trying to put myself in the moment, okay? Jesus is talking to this group in the synagogue and to this synagogue leader. Should not ought this woman, a child of Abraham, one of our own? Think about it. 18 years she's been coming here. What has she got to show for herself for 18 years of coming to synagogue, going to church, hanging out with y'all? Think about it. Think of it. For 18 years, should she not be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? You've got the law in spades. You could quote the law up one side and down the other. You guys are scribes, lawyers, Pharisees, holier than thou, religious people. You can beat people over the Bible all, all week long. You're, you're so good at that. But where's your compassion for this woman, this person in your midst? Somebody who needs a touch. Somebody who needs healing. But, well, we don't, we don't do it that way here. Really? Again, I think of the Jesus revolution when those dirty, stinky hippies started coming into the church. They had just put new carpet in at that teeny little church. It was called Calvary Chapel. He didn't, nobody, it, it just started that way. And the elders of the church were beside themselves because those hippies, those dirty feet were ruining the carpet. And Chuck confronted this board, who could have fired him. But he said, before I close the door to the hippies, we're going to tear the carpet out. If your problem is the carpet, then tear the carpet out. Don't close the door to people who need Jesus. We, I know, I'm hearing some amens, and I agree with you. But before we get done here, we're going to get to politicians. I'm just saying, you're laughing, but you said amen, so it's coming. <laughs> Verse 17, and when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for the righteous things which were done by him. Hallelujah, right? And then verse 18, and he's going to give us two uh, parables. He says, then he said, and this is at the synagogue. Everybody's rejoicing. Wonderful thing he's done. This lady's healed on the Sabbath in spite of what the religious uh, culture of their day said, you ought to do it that way. He said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Hmm. 
It's like a mustard seed. Teeniest of all seeds that they would have in their garden. It's like a mustard seed. It's, it's, it's almost insignificant. But in other places, as we see that mustard seed, Jesus would, requ- would uh, compare it to faith. It's, it's just faith. It's, it's, just, it's just faith. It's like a mustard seed, which a man took, and he put in his garden. And don't miss the comparison of the vineyard, which we just saw, Israel, that was not producing fruit. Now he picks up the same theme, agriculture, gardening theme, puts his little seed of faith in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now, again, this is a parable. It doesn't have to be true in all of its uh, botanical facts. Although there are mustard plants that can grow up to 12 feet tall and have quite thick branches. But that's not the point. The point, and this is what we're to understand, is that the kingdom of God, based on every pearl he has just strung for us, is a picture of a little teeny mustard seed of faith being planted. It grows into a beautiful tree. And then what comes to the tree? The birds. And if you look in Jesus and his other parables, he likens the birds, often in his stories, to Satan and demons who come and snatch away that good seed, that faith, that good thing. And what he's saying here is the kingdom of God what's it like it's like it's like this beautiful thing built on faith and then a whole bunch of religious holier and renows move in and take up nest amongst us the legalists they're they're going to be there it's spiritual infiltration This is a spiritual level. Next parable, verse 20, again he said, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven. What is leaven, team? It's it's yeast. What is it a picture of in the scriptures? Pretty much every time, sin, okay? It puffs up. It doesn't build up. It puffs up as he used the leaven of the Pharisees, okay? It's not good. It's sin, The kingdom of heaven is like a woman. It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. That hypocrisy, that covetousness, that laziness, that ignorance, that injustice, that unrighteousness, the woman, the common people, it just, it comes in, To the church. (laughs) It's here. You do know it's here, right? Do you know how you know it's here? Because you're here. We're here. We bring the leaven with us. Right? And we can get puffed up. We can get arrogant. We can get all about ourselves. I'm a child of God. I'm going to heaven. I'm good. You think you're better than those that the Tower of Siloam fell on? What makes you think you're better? You need to repent. See where this is going? So we have spiritual infiltration, and we have human adulteration. 
And whether it comes from Satan and his demons or whether it comes from me and you, the church is an unperfect, impure place. And it's not where we are going to find, or it is where we're going to find, but it's not the ticket to heaven. It's not the stairway to heaven. Only Christ is. Jesus Christ alone. He kind of goes on and explains that a little bit. Verse 22, and he went through the cities and villages. Now, so he's leaving the synagogue. Last time he's never going to go into one of those. And teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. I've got a little note in my, my Bible here. There's a book that I, I, I read when I was a young Christian. I recommend it to you, especially if you're working on your Christian walk. It was written in the late 1800s. 1896 was its first publication by a pastor by the name of um, Charles M. Sheldon. The name of the book is In His Steps. And it's a fictional book. It's a novel in those days, but it's written about uh, this fictitious church called the First Church of Raymond. And the pastor who challenged the fellowship to this revolutionary pledge that from now on, whatever we do, we're going to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And the book chronicles the revolution that took place as people started taking one step after another and started following Christ. What would Jesus do? In His Steps is the name of the book. And here we're going to start following the steps of Jesus. Journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said, Lord, are there few who are saved? And He said to them, Strive, literally agonize, put effort into it, be diligent. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In Matthew, uh, he says a, a little bit different, a little bit more detail in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 7, at verse 13, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate. And broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the great and difficult or confined is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Lord, are there few who are saved? The answer is yes. There are. There are a few who are saved. Most don't want to be saved. Regardless of which way you would point them. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus or church or the formal religion as they would often describe it. Strive to enter through the narrow gate for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. I'm the way. You, you, if you're looking to go to heaven, you're going to have to come to me. He would say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life in John chapter 14. And no one comes to the Father except by him. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to go to Jesus. 
You can't go to Calvary and think you're going to go to heaven. I hope you came here because you came to Jesus. Let me say that. I love our church. But if you think coming to this church is going to get you into heaven, that's not how it works. You have to come to Jesus, each and every one of us, individually, personally. Verse 25, he uses an illustration now. When once the master of the house was risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I don't know you, where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Remember, I was at the Agape Feast in that February Back in 2023, I went, I ate the stuff. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, workers of hypocrisy, covetousness, faithlessness, lazy, ignorant, unrighteous, unjust unrepentant. I don't know you. Verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. Ouch. I know this is harsh. Can I make it any less harsh? I guess I could try to sweeten it up and soften the blow. But I don't see how you can get there from reading what I'm reading right here. You're going to get there, and you won't get in. If you think you're going to do it because of what church you go to or what things you do for God. Now, clearly the Bible teaches us that we are saved by faith, by grace, through faith, not of works. So none of us can boast. Okay, it's all God's work, but he has prepared for us from the foundation of the earth works that we should walk in. Having come to him, he says, great, welcome to the kingdom. I've got stuff for you to do. And we get to get busy in the kingdom, but it doesn't earn us entry into the kingdom. It doesn't get us into heaven. It's just something that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who both enables us and encourages us to get it done, okay? And so we don't want to get the cart before the horse, and that's one of the things that Jesus is really kind of talking about right here. Um, he says, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, they're going to get in. They're, 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 that's all these founders of the, of the children of Israel, and kind of interesting in that, um, Israel didn't come along until Jacob's name was changed. There were many who were part of the kingdom of heaven long before Israel got to be that chosen nation, that peculiar people um, taken out of Egypt. But way back in the day, God had his people, and, they, and some people just didn't see it. Verse 29, they will come from the east and west and the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. As we read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people, they're all going to come into the kingdom and 
And you who thought you were going to get in because of your religiosity, because of your self-righteousness, you're going to have to just watch as they all go in and the door is closed and you don't get in. It's, it's heavy. It's sobering. It's a, it's a wake-up call to the church. Are we going to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus? Are we set for Calvary? Are we trying to bring people with us? Or are we closing the door and excluding people? Because you don't fit in. You don't look right. You don't act right. You don't talk right. Of course they don't. How could they? They're outside. And until we welcome them in amongst us, how are they ever going to know who we are or how we behave or what we act like? Yeah, the people that we are reaching out to often don't behave like us, don't believe like us. That's why they need us. That's why they need Christ. Finally, and we're just about to wrap up here. Jesus says in verse 30, Indeed, that those who are there, indeed, there, and indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. You know, I, I believe this is teaching of uh, the dispensation of the church the time where God has taken Israel and set them aside he doesn't walk with them anymore he goes a different way as he works with us the church age from the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ the day of Pentecost up until the rapture of the church he's working with the church and Israel has been put to the side they were first, they're going to be last, but they will be, they'll get in. Those, there are some who are first who will be last, and those who are last, us, the church, who come after Israel, we get in. I believe that's what this is in reference to. Verse 31, and on the very same day, Pharisees came saying to him, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Here it comes, team, the politician. Herod is a politician. Yes, he's a king. He was appointed by Caesar to be a king, a king of the Jews. Herod wasn't even Jewish. He was an Edomite. He was an enemy of the Jews, and yet he sat in the place on the throne as king of the Jews in direct opposition to Jesus the Christ. Herod is the anti-Christ. So the Pharisees come to him saying, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. Now it could be just a convenient way to get him out of the synagogue so they can go back to business as usual. But also be noted that in the book of Acts especially, it says many Pharisees came to Jesus and followed him. So it could be they're looking out for his better interests and saying, you need to go because they're sending a, a detachment of troops and they want to kill you. Or it could be it's a good excuse to get him down the road so he can get back to business. For Herod wants to kill you. His answer, he said to them, go tell that fox 
Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Nothing's going to sway Jesus, and nothing's going to stop Jesus. Herod's not going to stop Jesus. The Pharisees aren't going to stop Jesus. The common people are going to stop Jesus. Nothing is going to stop Jesus. He has an appointment with the cross. He has an appointment with you. He has an appointment with me to pay for our sin debt that we can become children of God. And he's not going to let anything take him off course. He will meet Herod. He's actually brought to Herod. We read about it later in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23. Uh, pick up at verse 9. It says, they question, then he questioned him. Pilate, I'm sorry, Herod questioning Jesus. Now that he's standing before him, Pilate questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod and his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Isaiah write, wrote about this 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 53 at verse 7, speaking of Jesus, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Jesus says, Go tell that fox. It's kind of fun in this. It's actually in the feminine. It's really vixen. Kind of an extra dig at Herod. Go tell that female fox, that wimp, that corrupt politician, that hypocrite playing the part of king of the Jews. He's not a Jew and he's not a king. He thinks he has authority over me. He can't touch me. No one can take my life from me. I lay it down that I may pick it up again. I'm on my way to save the world. Verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he would say, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. <laughs> this is supposed to be the heart and soul, the center of hope for the whole world. And it's turned out to be one of the most dangerous places to go for your soul. Here, Jerusalem, we could say church. Now, it sounds like before the morning's over, I've just talked myself out of a job. Nobody's coming back here next week. <laughs> Why would you? And again, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the other churches. No, I'm not. I'm not even saying that. I hang out with pastors from a lot of different churches. We gather across the Magic Valley for causes, uh, for the cause of Christ. I, I was at a meeting discussing uh, suicide in the Minicasha area and what resources we can bring to bear. It was up at the Rupert uh, Police Department last Thursday night. And I'm there with 
people of different faiths. Don't stone me for that. But I was hanging out with people that aren't from Calvary Chapel. I was hanging out with brothers from other churches and even outside the faith for the cause of life. It's devil that Satan, he's a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We bring life. How are we going to do that in Minicasha? We gather together for that meeting. So I'm not knocking churches. I'm not talk- knocking this church, and I'm not knocking whatever church you think I might be talking about right now. But those who put themselves up and think that they are the way, the truth, and the life. If you find yourself in a fellowship, if you find yourself in a church that says, unless you come to this church, you can't go to heaven, run. Get out. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You need to come to Jesus Christ, and you can do that in church, out of church, wherever you go. Jesus is the one who would encourage us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Paul writes that in the book of Hebrews, but the church is meant to be that body, that witness of Christ on earth over whom the gates of hell can't prevail. And we come here so that we can come to Jesus, share Jesus. Let me tell you about my Jesus. That's why we're here. But he's lamenting. How often I wanted to gather together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Not willing to come to Jesus. It's like the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. I stand at the door and I knock. And I'd like to come in. I'd love to go to your agape feast after the service. Is anybody going to open the door? Is anybody going to let Jesus in? Because he wants to be part of our lives. All of our lives. Verse 35, see your house. And this is, this is so damning. Condemning. He no longer calls it his house. How sad. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Worship team, come on up. i got to close us up here. I hope when you came here this morning, You came here because you love Jesus. You came here because you want to worship Jesus. You want to hear from Jesus. Yeah, I've been talking. My mouth has been moving. But the Holy Spirit has been working this morning. And you're not accountable to me and what I told you today. You're accountable to God and what His Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart. We come here to do business with Jesus, to love Jesus, to praise Jesus, to share Jesus with others. And if that's why you came here, praise God. I'll close with the the words of Peter in the book of Acts. They've been drawn before the Sanhedrin, the political supreme court, religious supreme court of Israel. Everybody is against Jesus. And here they're preaching in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, Beginning at verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, 
If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. Amen? Bow your hearts with me as we close in prayer. Jesus, however much we're able to know you, to comprehend you, to wrap our head around you, meet us here in this fellowship. Meet us here in the privacy even of our own hearts at this moment. Help us, Jesus, to look to you and only you as you welcome us with open arms into the kingdom through the door which you made the way. I pray if there's anybody in this room who is confused, doubting, afraid, worrying, dealing with hypocrisy, trying to play the game. Jesus, speak now. In the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to my heart. Show me you love me. Show me you care. Show me the hope that you bring. Even if I've been walking with you for decades, I want to see you, Jesus. My eyes are closed. I'm not looking at the neighbors. I'm not looking at the worship team. I want to see you, Jesus. Reveal yourself. Help me to know I'm loved. Help me to know that you're faithful and that you will complete the work that you began in me. Help me to know I am a child of God. My sins are forgiven. My debt is paid. My shame is erased. Help me to stand in your righteousness, justified by your blood, made holy by your spirit. I thank you, Jesus, for being all we ever dreamed or imagined and so much more. Help us now, Lord, take that next step of faith as we seek your face in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.
Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.